sermon text for today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Returning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And calling the crowd to him, with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The year was 1956. In the deep jungles of Ecuador lived a tribe called the Alca Indians. The Alcas were unreached not only by the gospel but by pretty much all civilization. They were notoriously violent towards outsiders. Their violence was running so deeply that they were decimating their own tribe. On January 3rd of 1956, five American missionaries landed a plane on a small, small strip of land. Their goal was to proclaim the gospel to the Alpines. They understood the risks associated with their mission. All five missionaries were married. Four of them had children. One of their wives was pregnant. But for them, to live was Christ, and to die was gain. They say together, one last time, we rest on thee, and went to evangelize the Alpines. At first, they were well received. They gave the Alpines gifts. They interacted well. But then, things changed. The Alpines turned on them and speared them, all five, to death. The question is, was it worth it? Was it worth it? Was it attempt to evangelize a tribe that had no interest in the gospel worth these precious lives? The answer is yes. The glory of Christ was worth their lives. The glory of Christ was worth their death. The reward 
reward they received was Christ. And it was worth it. Jim Elliot, the leader of the group, famously said once, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Friend, the life of a follower of Christ is a life filled with suffering, but it is worth it. The invitation that I'm proclaiming to you today is for you to join a group of people who come together to suffer. But it's worth it. Last week, Jesus' identity was revealed as Peter declared Jesus to be the Christ. It was a major hinge point in the gospel. So, verse 29 of chapter 8 is really the summit, in a sense, of this book. Everything before it points to that verse. Everything after it works itself out of that verse. This week, knowing who Christ is, now we turn to His mission. So, Jesus is a Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, the question that's going to dominate the second half of this book is, but what kind of Messiah is He? His mission was unexpected because his mission would be filled with suffering. The disciples were utterly surprised, surprised by Jesus' statements about suffering and dying. But if they had been more careful to ponder on the Word of God, they shouldn't have been surprised. The first promise of the Gospel involves suffering. God speaking to the serpent says, I will put enmity between the serpent, you, the serpent and uh, the, the, between the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. But notice that the offspring of the woman would not go unbruised, and you shall bruise his heel. As we heard earlier in our scripture reading, the Messiah was described as a suffering servant at Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened up his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened up his mouth. But not only that, even Christ himself had told the disciples that his path was a path of suffering. Back in chapter 2, some people came to Jesus to indict his disciples for not fasting. So here is how Jesus responded. Mark 2, 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So today Jesus will teach his disciples plainly about his way of suffering. But not only that, he will teach them that the way of the master is the way of the disciple. Jesus' mission 
affects our mission. Jesus' mission intersects with our mission. And if we will one day share in His glory, we must today share in His suffering. So today we're going to consider two points. We'll first consider Jesus' mission, and then we'll consider our commission. So let's consider first Jesus' mission. Imagine what it would have been like to be a disciple of Christ. Imagine what it would have been like to be one of the twelve. Put yourself with the crowds, the feeding of the five thousand, in the bowls filled with fear, just to then see Jesus calm the sea. But put yourself sitting under the teaching of his parents. The experience of living with Jesus, the accessibility to Christ, the witness of his miraculous mind. Sometimes we fail to realize that the disciples didn't always understand Christ, even though they were deeply exposed to Him. There was a learning curve even for the disciples when it comes to understand Jesus' identity and mission. I mean, all of us have come to Christ, and we know exactly, all of us who have come to Christ know exactly what this means. This very week I was listening to the testimony of someone who grew up in the church and said, I came to faith early, but it wasn't until later that I understood what the Christian life requires. I remember when I was 15, having a conversation with my brother, telling him, sometimes I just don't know that God is at work in me. Sometimes I fear. My brother pointed me to John 17, 17, and he said, Sanctify them in your word, in the truth. Your word is true. Which completely transformed my life, because I understood that if God was going to deeply sanctify me, I needed to know His word. We know this learning curve. We've experienced this learning curve. Peter, on behalf of the disciples, rightly describes Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. But they didn't understand what the mission of the Christ was. So the disciples were not very different from the man that was healed right before the passage. The man that was healed at first, but they could the Messiah was healed, he could see men, but they were standing like trees. That's how they saw Jesus at this point. The full healing was yet to come. They knew that he was the Christ. But what kind of Christ was he? So we see in verse 31 that Jesus is kind. He notices that the disciples are confused, so he begins to teach them the mission of the Messiah. So what does Jesus teach the disciples about the mission of the Messiah? First, Jesus tells them that his mission is necessary. His mission is necessary. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must, you missed that word, must suffer many things. The word must here is key. 
It is a simple three-letter word in the original Greek. They denotes necessity. I actually prefer the way that the Christian Standard Bible translates this verse. The CSB reads, Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things. Jesus' suffering was out of necessity. There was no other way. There was no other plan. But why was it necessary for Jesus to suffer? Because this was God's plan all along. God planned that redemption would be executed by the death of Christ from eternity past. We heard it earlier from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. If you're reading out of the KJV or the NKJV, you see that it says, It was his pleasure to crush him. He has put him to grief. The Apostle Peter himself, when we're going to see misunderstood the mission of Christ later on in our very passage. In the book of Acts, preaches rightly about the suffering of Christ. Acts 2.22, this is Peter's first sermon, and he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hand, by the hands of lawless men. The plan of the cross was not God's plan B. God didn't come up with that plan because men sinned. God did not look at Adam and Eve in the garden and found himself surprised and thought, what now? It was his definite decree from eternity past. To deliver a Christ. God is not reactive. God does not look at the actions of men and respond to the action of their will. God is sovereign. He orchestrates history. And He does so for the glory of His name. From eternity past, he determined that the Creator would also be the Redeemer. We're often quick to say that Christ died on the cross for me, and this is true. But we must remember that Christ died on the cross to fulfill the decree of God, and in doing so, bring Him glory. So Christ died on the cross for His glory. Amen. Why is this important? Because when we forget that the glory of God is the greatest goal, and our salvation is the byproduct of the glory of God, when we forget that, we put ourselves at the center of the biblical narrative, and we dethrone God for the place that He rightly deserves. And we make a man-made religion, Christianity becomes about us rather than God. So when the Bible calls us to suffering, we say, no, I'm going to live my best life today. But God does not call us to that. God calls us to live by faith in suffering, trusting that redemption is coming, and one day suffering will be, will be gone. But this life is a life of suffering. 
Second, Jesus tells us, tells his disciples that his mission involves suffering. Well, what was the suffering? Well, there's rejection. Jesus would be rejected. And not just rejected by anybody, Jesus would be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. In other words, Jesus would be rejected by the religious leaders. One of the interesting features in the Gospel of Mark is that whenever we meet somebody that we would expect to understand things in the spiritual way, they miss it. And those that are unexpected, that we wouldn't expect to understand things in a spiritual way, they get it. So Jesus would be rejected by the religious leaders. These are the ones who should know who Jesus is. These are the ones who are well acquainted with the Word of God, but they miss the Christ in the midst of their dead religion. We have to be careful about this, don't we? We have to be careful that we don't miss Christ in the midst of our religion. You know, I don't reject the word religion. I think the word religion is a good word. Why do we think that? Because the Bible uses it. The Bible talks about a religion that is true and pure. Well, friends, there is a religious, a religion that is bad. A religion that misunderstands Christ, that seeks to shape Christ after our own image and likeness. But the Christ wouldn't just be rejected, he would die. The ultimate suffering, death itself, is part of the mission of Christ. We often don't associate suffering with the will of God. We can think if we are in the will of God, we shouldn't suffer. If we just obey God, we're not going to face hardship in life. We can often think like this. But on the contrary, the Bible describes suffering as part of God's purpose for our lives. The Bible associates suffering with joy. The Bible does not associate suffering with something that we should reject, but something that we should embrace, because suffering is God's way of shaping His children after His image. Romans 5.3, not only that, but rejoice in suffering. 2 Corinthians 12.10, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. Insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. First Peter 4.13 But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering. James 1.2 Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Friends, the witness of the Bible about God's will for us and the suffering of our life being one and the same is not weak or vain. It's abundant. It's everywhere. But we don't naturally associate suffering with joy, do we? And neither does Peter. Do you see that? He rebukes Jesus when Jesus teaches his disciples about his suffering. All the audacity to rebuke the Son of God. To stand there and say, I know you created the universe. I know you sustain all things. But Jesus, I know better than you. I know what you need to do. But Jesus turns to the disciples, which likely means that Peter was behind him, and he says, Get behind me, Satan. 
Peter at that moment took the mantra of prosperity gospel. He, he took on the role of a prosperity preacher. The cross frees you from suffering. And Jesus saying that Jesus' suffering is not from God. I will not allow you to go through it. Peter was very unaware of his weaknesses, was he not? But Jesus knew that this was not the message from God, but the message from Satan. So in his review to Peter, he says, You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The mind that man preaches the gospel, the mind of man preaches the gospel without the cross. The mind of man preaches joy without suffering. But Christ knew that the way of the Messiah and the way of those who follow Him was the way of the cross. You may be listening to this and you may be asking yourself the question, but why? I have suffered in such significant ways in my life. Why would God appoint the way of the Messiah? Your suffering and call me to follow in his way. Friends, there are many answers, there are many questions that we don't have a full answer for today. But we will one day. I think that that's included in every tear will be wiped away, is that we will understand the purpose of God and the suffering of life. I want to say, if you're suffering, I want to say, if you're suffering, or if you have suffered significantly, I want to say to you, I don't know all the ins and outs of why God has designed the world to be in such a way, and not only that, but has designed the life of a Christian to be a life of suffering. But I can tell you this, we know that suffering that is in Christ has a purpose. Paul tells us that the suffering of this life is light and momentary because it prepares for us an eternal way of glory. So we know that suffering prepares us for something. Suffering prepares us for heaven. Suffering prepares us for the eternity to come. And the other thing that I want to say to you is this. I don't know all the ins and outs of why God has designed the Christian life to be a life of suffering. But God doesn't just provide us with suffering. He provides us with the comfort of someone who understands suffering. God is not unwilling to step into the human experience and suffer with us. God is not disconnected from our experience. God is with us, and Christ came to suffer because He can say, I know what it's like to go through some great pain and suffering. So you can come to me. You know, I'm often encouraged. One of the greatest sufferings is to lose a child. Isn't that one of the greatest sufferings that you can experience in life? Do you realize that God knows exactly what it feels like to see His Son die? The great grief and pain and suffering. God knows. God 
understands. So friend, there's no suffering that you can't bring to the cross that God will say, I don't understand. I can't relate. He knows. He's sympathetic. And friends, I think another thing that we can see here is that um, sometimes we can be really strong, right? We can be like Peter, we can say, Jesus is the Christ. And sometimes we can turn around in the same scene and say, but Jesus, I know better than you. I think what we see in Christ's discipleship is that sometimes our strengths are our weaknesses, and we need to come to Christ with both of them. Peter comes to Christ with both his strengths and weaknesses. There's something to be learned from, from Peter here. That, that, that Peter doesn't go around proclaiming the wrong gospel. He goes to Christ. And Christ corrects us. So I think it's really important for us to consider from Peter that God has endowed us with great strength and great weaknesses. And both of them, strengths and weaknesses, should point us to Christ. Third, Jesus tells his disciples that his mission would be triumphant. And I think Peter misses this, right? Peter misses the triumph. No, Jesus was not a masochist that simply enjoyed pain. No, he simply knew that his mission was to be accomplished. And in the accomplishment of his mission, he would receive joy. He knew that on the other side of the cross, there was a resurrection. Sometimes we miss this when we share the gospel, don't we? Jesus died for you. But is that all? No. He rose for you. He's not dead. He's alive. And the reason why you can have this certainty of your own resurrection is because Jesus rose from the dead. So, this is what the author of Hebrews tells us. That Jesus, for the joy that was set before him enjoyed joy endured the cross. The resurrection is glorious. The resurrection is the exaltation of Christ. A Christ who is merely crucified accomplishes nothing. I remember when my first class in seminary, one of the one of the professors was asking, he was teaching us to interact with skeptics, and he said, Would you would anything ever convince you to not be a Christian? And one of the one of the students in the class said, If somebody found the bones of Jesus in a tomb, I will not be a Christian. And I agree with him. Because if Jesus did not raise from the dead, our faith is in vain. But we know that there are no bones. We know that there is an empty tomb because Jesus rose from the dead. So our resurrection is assured. We have a living Savior who has conquered death by dying and rising again. We often think of the justification that we receive as accomplished by the death of Christ. But the resurrection was necessary too. The resurrection was the vindication of the sacrifice that Christ presented. Had Christ remained in the grave, we would still be in our sins and justification would not be accomplished. But this is what Paul says here in Romans 4.25. Jesus was delivered out for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Do not miss the resurrection. Do not believe in the Jesus who is dead. Believe in the Christ who has raised and conquered the death. This is the full message of the gospel. When Paul 
summarizes the gospel to the Corinthians. He tells them that the gospel is a message for salvation of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Friends, this is the message that we're called to believe in. Christianity is about believing in the sacrifice of Christ, but also believing in the resurrection of Christ. So, you can only partake in the sufferings of Christ if you first believe the message of Christ. So, do you believe the gospel? When you hear of the suffering of Christ, do you believe that Jesus died and rose again, that He suffered for His glory? Yes, but that Jesus died and He died for me. Do you believe that? Friends, nothing else makes you a Christian. Going to church does not make you a Christian. A disciplined life of Scripture reading and prayer does not make you a Christian. Sharing the gospel with others does not make you a Christian. Being born in a Christian home does not make you a Christian. Being born in a Christian culture does not make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is believing that Jesus died and that He rose again and He did so to forgive us our sins. Do you believe that? Do you believe the gospel? And if you do, then you have a mission. If you do, you are commissioned to live in life of Christ's suffering. So let's consider now our commission. Christians are called to identify with Christ. Christ's triumph was accomplished through suffering. And we are called to be imitators of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And yes, this includes the way we live. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. But also includes the way we suffer. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And this is why he goes on to say, for I bear on my body, on my body, the marks of Christ. What does this mean? Paul so identified with the suffering of Christ on the cross. That his body bears the marks of his suffering. So he says in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. For Paul, his suffering in ministry was so closely associated with the suffering of Christ that he feels his suffering as an extension of the suffering of Christ. What does filling up the what is lacking in Christ's affliction mean? Christ died for the church, and when we proclaim the gospel and others hear, they also partake on the sacrifice of Christ. So there are many who are to believe, and the proclamation of the gospel brings those who are to believe to partake on the suffering of Christ. And this is not only true of Paul, but it is true of anyone who follows Christ. Paul again in Acts 14.22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So, Jesus now turns his attention from his disciples to the crowd. We have, we, we, we've seen this crowd since the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. The crowds are not the insiders like the disciples who receive the secrets of the kingdom. 
But they're also not the outsiders like the Pharisees and the scribes. They're in between. They're observers without a serious commitment. So Jesus summons the crowds. He says to them, if anyone, is an invitation, isn't it? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is a general call for anyone that will listen to Christ. Really, this is a call to salvation. But for Christ, a call to salvation is first a call to self-denial and suffering. I love how the author of Hebrews speaks of Moses' choice to follow Christ. Is that surprising to you? That Moses chose to follow Christ? Well, this is how the author of Hebrews speaks. Hebrews 11, 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing, right, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ. That's the cross. Consider the cross of Christ. Greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. What a great Christological statement. It is beyond what I can understand. Moses who preceded Christ. Preferred the reproach of Christ. Over the wealth and the treasures of Egypt. It's puzzling to even think about what this means. But Moses chose Christ. He chose his reproach over riches. He chose the way of the cross. He chose the way of suffering. What does this mean? It means that Moses chose the heat of the desert over the cool chambers of Pharaoh. It means that Moses chose to be persecuted rather than to be a prince. It means that Moses chose to eat manna for 40 years over the royal banquets. It means that Moses chose to fight against Pharaoh's army rather than fight for him. It means that Moses chose to suffer because through suffering Moses gained Christ. It means that Moses understood that the reproach of Christ is richer than the riches of Egypt. Friends, and that's just as Moses was called to suffer. Because through suffering he gained Christ. Just as Moses was called to suffer, you and I are called to suffer. You are called to live not to maximize your pleasure, your pleasures in this life, but to surrender the decisions of your life. 
And more importantly, to surrender the direction of your life to the will of Christ. So if you're struggling today in your marriage, and you think it would be easier to find a way out, you need to remember that Christians are called not to the way of comfort, but to the way of the cross. If God has put people in your life that are hard to love, and if you're tempted to avoid them, ignore them, you need to pursue loving them regardless of what you feel. Because Christians are called not to the way of comfort, but to the way of the cross. Young men and women, if you're working on your education, on your career, there are paths ahead of you that may be convenient for you to pursue, but will not be honoring to God. Choose your career according to what brings glory to God. Because Christians are called not to the way of comfort, but to the way of the cross. Parents, you may feel tempted to find shortcuts in parenting. It's easy to let TVs and tablets raise our children. If they're busy, we're free. Resist this. Invest in your children even when you're tired, even when it's difficult, even when you're exhausted, because it is your mission in life to raise your children to know the Lord. And because Christians are called not to the way of comfort, but to the way of, of the cross. Friends, many of you in your jobs, in your relationships, Perhaps all of you will be called to take a clear stance on biblical sexuality and morality. And as hard as this may become, and as difficult as the consequences may come to be to us to affirm biblical morality, remember that Christians are called not to the will to the way of comfort, but to the way of the cross. When you're tempted to evade and avoid suffering, remember the reproach of Christ is richer than the riches of Egypt. But Jesus doesn't just call us to suffer. He tells us why we should suffer. So let's finish today by briefly looking at verses 35 through 38. As Jesus answers, why his disciples should suffer? Notice that every verse, starting in verse 35, begins with the word for. Again, this is a simple three-letter word in the Greek language, gar. Very powerful and important word. Uh, because these four, four here are going to ground Jesus' call to suffer. These are grounding arguments. Jesus just made a bold statement, you're called to suffer, you're called to live a cross-centered life, but now he's going to tell us why. So why does Jesus call us to live a cross-centered life? First, because when we try to save our lives from the sufferings of the cross, Christ calls us to, we lose our lives. In other words, to reject the suffering of Christ is to reject Christ. 
So, on the outside, it may seem as though we are living prosperous lives when we avoid for Christ, the cross of Christ, but in light of eternity, to reject the cross, Christ calls us to, to bear leads to destruction. Christ calls us to bear a life that leads to destruction, destruction. To avoid a life that leads to destruction. We see this very clearly in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, don't we? It looked like the rich man had a prosperous life and Lazarus had a life of misery, of misery but that is all in reverse in eternity. And friends, what joy it must be to arrive in the eternal throne, before the eternal throne of God, and realize that the sufferings of this world are no longer present daily. The word that Jesus uses here, translated to lose, is stronger than the translation implies. The word can be rendered to wreck or to destroy. So Jesus is saying, if you want to save your life, you're going to wreck your life. But if you choose to wreck your life for my sake, in other words, if you choose to wreck your life for the from the, by the standards of this world, you will save your life. The second, Jesus calls us to live a cross-centered life because the eternal heavenly rewards are much greater than the temporal earthly rewards. Both verses 36 and 37 are making the same argument. Jesus says, For what does the prophet meant to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return to his soul. So Jesus is contrasting here two things, the world and the soul. The world represents that which is gained in this life. So status, money, recognition, popularity, sports, education, sex, power, prestige. Those who have the whole world may have these things, but those things only last a lifetime, but eternity lasts forever. I was listening to the testimony of a man who picks up cans in the streets of New York for a living. His name is John. You might have seen his video. His video has gone somewhat viral in social media. John had a rough life. He made some very bad decisions when he came to Christ. In his testimony, John quotes Ephesians 1.4 and he says, I came to Christ because he chose me in Him before the foundation of the world. And John goes on to say that it is unbelievable that God would choose a man who would wreck his life. A man whose living comes from picking up cans in the streets of New York City. It is unbelievable for him that God would choose him and that He would choose him from eternity past. If you saw John on the streets of New York City, you wouldn't think much of him. But God thinks much of John. And John is reached beyond belief. He, is, he has not gained the whole world. But his soul is not lost. His suffering led him to Christ. And he bore his cross gladly. So John is proud of Christ. And Christ is proud of John, which leads us to our last verse, 
Why does Jesus call us to live a cross-centered life? Because if we deny Christ, to avoid the cross, He calls us to bear. He will deny us before the Father. Friends, a Christian is proud of Christ. Yesterday, Indy and I went out to lunch with the kids, and we sat with another family. It was one of those settings where um, families sit together. We greeted each other, and within a couple of minutes, the father of the other family was already talking to me about his church. I couldn't see what he was doing. He was hearing the conversation so that he could get to Christ. He wanted to tell me about Christ. And I was so happy about that. Because it is such a wonderful thing to talk about our Savior. What a wonderful thing to meet a man who can't wait to talk about Jesus. What a wonderful thing to meet a man who is not ashamed of Christ. Often we shy away from sharing our faith, don't we? But Christ calls us to recognize Him before men. Do we do that? Do we share the gospel indiscriminately as we go? Do you look for ways to talk about Jesus and His gospel with others? If you believe the gospel, but have not, or, or and you do not share it. Here's a specific way. If you believe the gospel, but have not been baptized. That's always the name of the gospel, right? One in confession of faith, friend, you're denying Christ. Baptism is the proclamation of Christ. So do not delay proclaiming Christ publicly because you do not want to be found ashamed of Christ when he returns. You know, I was counseling a, a 10 year old uh, to, uh, uh, for baptism once with another pastor in my former church. And we were not sure that she had experienced regeneration of Christ. So my friend, the pastor, asked such an important question. He asked this 10-year-old girl, um, how would you feel if we invited all your classmates to your baptism? And you know what she said? She said, well, that would be embarrassing. And right there we knew that she didn't know Christ. Right there we knew that she shouldn't have been, she shouldn't be baptized. Because Christ, for her, was embarrassing. But friends, may Christ not be embarrassing to you. May your life be about Christ. May your life be about the proclamation of Christ. And friends, proclaim Him boldly with the message that you live. Proclaim Him boldly with the ordinances that He has given to you. Do you gladly acknowledge Christ as Lord in places that would judge you for doing so, or in places that would make fun of you or reject you. Oh friend, the warning here is serious. If we are ashamed of Christ, we will be ashamed. He will be ashamed of us when He comes. But the opposite is true. If we acknowledge Christ today, He will acknowledge us when He returns. This is the goal of the Christian life to see Christ, and to be like Him. I think when we see Christ face to face, we will, at that moment, look at our lives and say, all that suffering, all that pain, all the lost relationships, was all worth it. The pain and suffering and rejection, all that the world had to reject because of Christ. Now it makes sense. Now I know. 
growth of Christ is better than the riches of this world. Would you pray with me? Oh Father, how we need to understand 